Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from Victory Baptist Church in Hope Mills, North Carolina. I pray that God uses this message to help you worship God, strengthen your relationship, and glorify Him. Without further ado, here is this week's message. I got to get back into the swing of things and, and remembering to record the podcast and getting all this other stuff going. Um, so this morning, uh, if you would go ahead and open your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 14, we are continuing our sermon series going through the book of Luke, um, and we're calling this an unexpected king because when we look at Jesus's life and we look at his, his lordship, his, well, his life is basically unlike any king that you would expect. It's unlike any king that ever came in human history, and well, it's unlike any other king who will come in, uh, throughout the rest of human history, the, the future of human history, if that makes any sense. Um, you know, from conception to Jesus' earthly parents, his birthplace, his childhood, all the way into his public life as an adult, every aspect of Jesus' life is almost completely opposite of what you would expect of a king. And so this morning, like I said, we're in Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, and the title of this sermon is, Is It Permitted in the Law? Is It Permitted in the Law? Um, and the main idea here is that Jesus fulfills the law. Um, I've got this text broken down into uh, three divisions, and so there's a similar situation, silent ab- adversaries, and Sabbath re-education. I'll say that again. A similar situation, Sabbath, or sorry, silent adversaries, and Sabbath re-education. Um, I'm going to pray, and we'll get into this text. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for the word that you've given to us. We thank you that you preserved your word through history for us to know you Lord, this morning as we open up your word, I pray that you will reveal yourself to us in it. Help us to see you in this word. Show us how we are not like you and help us to be transformed so that we can better reflect your glory to those around us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so as I said, we're in Luke 14, 1 through 6, but we're going to start here just looking at verses 1 and 2. So here, starting in Luke 14, verses 1 and 2. It says, one Sabbath day, Jesus went to eat dinner in the home of a leader of the Pharisees, and the people were watching him closely. There was a man there whose arms and legs were swollen. All right, so, so far, going through this book, we've read about several times where Jesus has butted heads with the Pharisees. They did not like him. They challenged him. They tried to discredit him. But Jesus always outsmarted them and embarrassed them. In Luke 11, we're told that the Pharisees were hostile to Jesus and were looking for some evidence that they could use to arrest him. Jesus is going to this dinner knowing that there's going to be enemies there. He's going into the lion's den, so to say. The people there knew about this history. The people there knew about the enmity that he had with the the Pharisees. They knew this tension. So they're watching very closely to see what's going to happen. They're sitting there, and they're watching, and they're waiting. The pressure is building. The tension is high. And the people, well, it seems like they're ready for a show. This event is not unlike several other events that have happened so far in this book. Just so far in Luke, we've read about four other instances where sick people are brought to Jesus on the Sabbath for a healing. There have been at least two other times where Jesus went to a Pharisee's house for dinner. Several times, Jesus and the Pharisees have been in verbal spats. All of those events are setting up a pattern that's going to play out here again. The same pattern over and over again. Now, when we're looking at things that are repeated in the Bible, we know that God repeats things in the Bible for us because, well, we can be a little bit hard-headed, and we need to hear that message several times. 
right? But this pattern that we're seeing, we can already kind of guess what's going to happen here, right? Jesus is going to heal on the Sabbath, and he's going to clash with the Pharisees. Either they're going to challenge him, and or he's going to challenge them. And in the end, the Pharisees are going to be outdone by Jesus. So what lesson can we learn from this? Jesus has the power to heal, and he's smarter than the Pharisees. End of sermon, we can go home, right? No, no, no. Right? Even though that's true, all of that that I just said is true, at this point, if I simply preach that same sermon again, I risk becoming trite. Not that God's word is trite, but the sermon, my delivery of that, could become trite. So there has to be something more here that's going on. Right? Yes, God repeats things in the Bible for us because we need to hear it multiple times. But if we just hear the same thing over and over again, we're not growing. We're not learning. So there, there's, there's something else here, something else here that God wants us to learn. And to get that, to, to hear that, to understand that, we have to keep reading. So verses 3 and 4. Oh, I'm falling behind on my presentation. Verses 3 and 4, starting in verse 3. It says, Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in religious law, is it permitted in the law to heal people on the Sabbath day or not? When they refused to answer, Jesus touched the sick man and healed him and sent him away. So this question Jesus asks, is it permitted to heal on the Sabbath day or not? That's where I got the title of the sermon, is it permitted in the law? All right, so Jesus asks the Pharisees and the religious leaders, or the, the experts in religious law, he asks them about the law. And so he's referring to the Old Testament commandments given by God. Does anybody know, and so this is a question, not a rhetorical question. I, I'm, I'm looking for answers here. Does anybody know how many commandments or laws there are in the Old Testament? There's a lot, isn't there? 613. 613. Now, that's a lot. A lot of these are commands, things that a person is supposed to do. Right? This law says that you need to go do this. There are also a lot of restrictions, right? A lot, a lot of things that a person is not to do. In the Old Testament, there's a lot of laws that tell you to do this and a lot of laws that tell you not to do that. 613 do's and don'ts. That's a lot to keep up with. But remember the crowd that's there. These are the Pharisees and the experts in religious law. If anyone were to know what was going on, if anybody were to know these laws, if anybody was to know the commands, it was going to be these people. These were the lawyers of the day, the experts. They were supposed to know what was going on. So if we're, if we're talking about the Old Testament laws, right, the first ones that anyone learns or the first ones that anybody think of, think of are the Ten Commandments, right? And of course, one of the, the Ten Commandments is to keep the Sabbath holy, right? Here's that commandment. It's in Exodus 20, starting in verse 8. It says, remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. But on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. So obviously, working on the Sabbath was against the law. It was against the Ten Commandments, against God's law outlined in the Old Testament. So I guess, all right, so would it seem, sorry, it would seem that Jesus is not allowed to heal this man if healing qualifies as work. I'm sorry? 
ordinary work, right? In Exodus, it said uh, you have six days to do your ordinary work. That's a good point. Right, so the, the real question is, does healing qualify as work or ordinary work? And therefore, if it qualifies as ordinary work, is it prohibited on the Sabbath? So if you're unsure about the answer, don't feel bad because, well, even the Pharisees and, and religious experts, or the, the experts in religious law, they refuse to answer. Even though they're supposedly the experts, they're still unwilling to go on the record with a, a solid answer here. They're, they're unwilling to go on the record answering Jesus' question. It's obvious now, and it's obvious to everyone who is there. These religious elites, they knew the answer to the question. They knew what, what the answer was. They simply refused to answer. They weren't silenced because they were dumbfounded. They weren't silenced because they were confused. They were silenced because they were, they were obstinate. They, they were... Uh, working against Jesus. And so they didn't want to give him an answer because they wanted to catch him doing something wrong. They wanted some, some reason to have, to have some, some evidence to discredit Jesus. And they had lost enough debates with Jesus to know that whatever answer they gave, they couldn't win against him. If they said yes, he would prove them wrong. If they said no, he would prove them wrong. And they surely didn't want to give him the credit of proving him right. So even though they refused to answer, Jesus didn't refuse to act. Notice what it says here. Jesus touched the sick man and healed him and sent him away. I'm going to go ahead and say this here to you. Jesus has a plan for you. He has a job for you to do, and he wants to use you to accomplish his will. On a bigger scale, God has a plan for this church. He wants to use this church to impact this community, and he wants to use this church to impact the world for his kingdom growth. He wants you to be a part of that mission. His plan is for you to be an active participant in that mission. And you're like, what does that have to do with this point right here? When we are obedient to his will in our lives, we feel his presence and his love more and we grow closer to him and we are more satisfied in him. But if we are not obedient to him, he will call somebody else Somebody else is going to fulfill our responsibilities, and somebody else is going to get that blessing. I'm not saying that you're going to lose your salvation, even though in this example, I don't think the Pharisees or the religious elites, I don't think they were saved. But for you, if you are saved and you are disobedient to God, I'm not saying you're going to lose your salvation, but you're going to lose that blessing. Even more so, you're probably going to get disciplined by God. You see, God is faithful to do what he says he's going to do. Jesus says that he came to heal the sick, and he's here in that, in that, at that dinner, and a sick man comes to him on the Sabbath, and he, he asks the, the religious people of the day, what are they supposed to do? And they refuse to act. God heals him anyway, even though the religious people of the day failed to act. We risk that same thing today. If God is calling you, to act, and you don't do it, then we risk being just like the Pharisees and the experts in religious law. God is faithful to do what he says he's going to do, just as Jesus did here. God is going to be God. He's going to be a healer. He's going to be reconciler. He's going to be comforter, and he is going to be savior. And he wants you to participate in this. But if you don't, God is still faithful. You don't want to be like the Pharisees in this story. 
The Pharisees and these supposedly religious and righteous people, they were the most righteous people in that society. But throughout the Gospels, we see that they have strayed further and further away from God's will. And when I say they were the most righteous people in that society, that's righteous in their own eyes, not righteous in God's eyes. I pray that this church does not fall into that same trap. I pray that you don't fall into that same trap. Instead of joining in with Jesus and his ministry, the Pharisees, they sit there and they defiantly watch him and they make themselves his enemy. Now this conflict that's going on right now, this conflict is just heating up. And I'm sure the crowd that was there that day when Jesus touched that man and healed him in defiance of the Pharisees' uh, enmity, I'm sure there was, it was almost an audible gasp in that audience. And they wanted to see how the Pharisees were going to respond. So let's keep reading to see what happens next. Verses 5 and 6. It says, Then he turned to them and said, Which of you doesn't work on the Sabbath? If your son or your cow falls into a pit, don't you rush to get him, to get him out? Again, they could not answer. See, the Pharisees and the, and the experts, they tried to stay silent and keep from, from putting their foot in their mouth again. But Jesus wouldn't let them off that easily. He called them out for the hypocrisy. Let me read for you again what Jesus says to them. Which of you doesn't work on the Sabbath? If your son or your cow falls into a pit, don't you rush to get him out. Now this, like I said, this is not a new situation that we're reading about in Luke. A very similar situation came up just in the last chapter, back in verse, uh, chapter 13. Um, here, Jesus healed a woman on the Sabbath and he scolded the Pharisees. He says, you hypocrites, each of you works on the Sabbath day. Don't you untie your ox or your donkey from its stall on the Sabbath and lead it out for water? This dear woman, a daughter of Abraham, has been held in bondage by Satan for 18 years. Isn't it right that she be released even on the Sabbath? The point there was that th this woman was way more valuable than any animal. Human life is inherently sacred because we are made in the image of God. If these Pharisees wouldn't want their working animals to be hungry, then how much worse would it be to let this woman suffer in pain? Jesus makes a similar point here. If one of their working animals falls into a ditch, then they would do a lot of work to get that animal out. If a, call, if a cow falls into a ditch, that's a lot of work to get that cow out of the ditch. It's not easy work. That's hard work. And if they're willing to go out and do that, if that animal is valuable, valuable enough for that, then this person who is made in the image of God, who is incalculably more valuable than an animal, deserves to be healed, even if it's on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus points out their hypocrisy, and he asks them to answer for themselves. And again, we see that they have nothing to say. Because there is no defense for their hypocrisy. There is no defense for their hypocrisy. That's the most obvious reason for their silence. But it's not the only reason. It's not even the main reason. They sit there in silence, yes, because of their hypocrisy. But the hypocrisy is not the main reason. They're not silent because they're confused. Well, they are, actually. They're silent because they don't truly understand. They think they understand, but they can't. The main reason they're silent is they don't understand the law as well as they think they do. The Pharisees and experts in law 
actually have a gross misunderstanding of the law. They can't truly understand the law because the law points to Jesus, and Jesus fulfills the law. They can't truly understand the law because they have rejected Jesus. Jesus is the law incarnate. He embodies the law. He is the law. And when they reject Jesus, they reject the law. If they fail to accept him, they will always misinterpret God's law. Now, when I say that the law points to Jesus, what I mean is that it shows us that we cannot live up to God's standards of righteousness, and we need a Savior. We'd, we'd read what Paul wrote in Romans 7, starting at 14. He says, So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is the sin living inside of me. Sorry. Uh, So the law outlines God's righteousness and it highlights our sinfulness. Paul says, I see the law and I see that the law is good and I want to follow the law, but I can't do it. The law outlines God's righteousness and it shows us his perfect character. And Paul says, I can't keep it. I cannot earn my righteousness through the law. The law points to our need for a savior. But God didn't just give the law. Throughout the Old Testament, he continually promised a savior. He promised that there would be one who would buy his people back from that slavery to sin. He promised that there would be someone who would set us free from sin's power and redeem us back to him. Jesus is that redeemer. He is that savior. We'll stay in Romans and go just right over to chapter 8, starting verse 1. Paul says, So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law, the law of Moses, was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied or fulfilled. The just requirement of the law would be fulfilled for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. So when I say that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, there are multiple meanings to that statement. We'll go over three this morning. All right, so first, Jesus fulfilled the law in that he was faultless. He was innocent. He fulfilled the law in that he perfectly kept every command in that law. Whether it was the do this or the don't do that, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law in that he kept the law perfectly. He was sinless. The rest of us, all of us, we fail in that law. We cannot keep the law, but Jesus proved to be righteous. He fulfilled the law. Second, Jesus fulfilled the law because he took the punishment for our unrighteousness. The punishment for unrighteousness is death. And Jesus took that punishment. Verse 4 right here, he says, he did this, I'm sorry, um, verse, uh, verse 3, right before verse 4. It says, and in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sin. 
He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us. Jesus fulfilled the punishment that we earned. We are guilty. We deserve death. But Jesus took that punishment for us. He fulfilled the punishment of the law. And finally, Jesus fulfilled the law because he gives us life and he reconciles us to God when the law could only separate us from God. Look at what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. Uh, that says Galatians 2. I think it should say 3. Galatians three thirteen. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in scriptures, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham, so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Jesus reconciled us to God. The law could only separate us from God. It showed us our failures, and it showed us why we are not righteous. But Jesus, instead of just showing us how we're not righteous, he gives us his righteousness and reconciles us back to God. He brings us back into God's family. Even us Gentiles, even those of us who are not born into the Old Testament family of Abraham, Paul says that even us Gentiles get the same blessings he promised to Abraham. We're believers promised through the Holy Spirit, given the Holy Spirit as that evidence of our salvation. The Pharisees and the experts in the law will never understand the law as long as they reject Jesus. He is the embodiment of the law. He perfectly keeps every bit of it. He satisfies his wrath, and unlike the law, he sets us free from our sin. As long as these religious elites try to earn their righteousness by their deeds, they will continue to clash with Jesus. As long as you try to appease God with your works, you will clash with him. It is only through faith in Jesus that we can please God and be reconciled to him. It is only through faith in Jesus that we can participate in God's mission, like I talked about earlier. And it is only through faith in Jesus that we can understand his law and his word. So what application do we get from this? If you remember, our application always comes from our definition of a disciple, which we get from Matthew 4.19. Right? And so in that, we have our three indicators, the knowing, being, and doing. So our no application is to know that Jesus fulfills the law. The law given throughout the Old Testament was given to define righteousness and therefore show our sinfulness. It clarified our failures and our need for a Savior. The law pointed out that we are sinful and we cannot earn our own righteousness. Because of the Old Testament law, we can understand that we all deserve death and eternal punishment. But Jesus came and he lived the perfect life. He was sinless. He perfectly kept the law. He fulfilled every requirement of its righteousness. But even more so, not only did he fulfill righteousness, but he also fulfilled the punishment that we deserve. He fulfilled the law's required punishment for those who failed to keep its law. Jesus went to the cross to take the death that we deserve. He took our punishment for our guilt for breaking the law. Even better, through faith in Jesus, we can be made right with God. Something that the law could not do. And that actually leads us to our next application point, is to be saved by Jesus. As I just said, the law could never save us. We are sinful and we cannot keep the law. Therefore, we cannot earn salvation by the law. But Jesus did it. And that's what makes Christianity different from every other world religion. All other world religions are about what you can do, 
How can you earn your righteousness? How can you satisfy God? What can you do to escape this painful life? But Christianity is about what Jesus has already done. We don't have to satisfy the wrath of God because it's already been paid for us on the cross. J.D. Greer says it this way, Every other world religion can be spelled D-O, but Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E. Because it's not about what you can do, it's about what Jesus has already done. He simply offers that salvation to us as a free gift. Now, like any gift, it can be received or rejected. You receive this gift of salvation by placing your faith in him and surrendering to him as Lord. And that's our final application point. Surrender to Jesus as Lord. Saying that Jesus has fulfilled the law and freed us from sin and freed us from uh, its wrath could sound like we are allowed to continuously, lawlessly sin and live that sinful life. It's true that we do not follow the law to gain God's love, but because God loves us and has accepted us, we live obediently to him. The Holy Spirit, given to us at salvation, gives us the desire to be obedient to God. If you say that you are saved, but you do not desire to live a righteous life, if you do not desire to live according to God's will, I think you need to seriously consider, reconsider your salvation. If you are saved, there should be continual growth towards righteousness and towards holy living. This is because the Christian life is a life of surrender. We surrender at that point of salvation, but we continuously surrender day after day, moment by moment. When we surrender for salvation, we are saying, yes, I believe I'm placing my faith in you. But every day, as we surrender more and more to God, we find different areas of our lives that are not fully surrendered yet. And we continuously surrender more and more of our lives to him. And then, unfortunately, sometimes we have an area of our life that we may have surrendered in the past, but then we took control back over for ourselves. We have to surrender that again and again and again. Our life is a life of surrender to God and following his will for our lives, being an active participant in that mission for God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth in your word. God, I pray this morning that you will help us not just to understand that you have fulfilled the law for us, but that we can take that understanding and let it live deep in our hearts. Let us surrender to that more and more each day. God, I pray that each and every one of us will be obedient to you. Help us, Lord, to surrender our lives to you so that we can go out and be on mission for you, growing your kingdom and showing your glory to those around us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you again for listening to this week's message. If you would like to know more information about our church, please visit victorybaptisthopemills.com or facebook.com slash vbchopemills. I would also like to ask that you rate and review this podcast. And if you found this sermon helpful, please share it.